Kia ora. Good morning, church. It's lovely to be with you. Unfortunately, it's not to be in person on Thursday evening this week. Uh, five out of the six Lind family simultaneously developed symptoms to do with a pesky little virus that is floating around. And so we are in isolation for a few more days. But we are able to still come together around uh, God's word and continue in our book of James. Our series is called Faith Does. And we saw it last week in the introduction. James's goal is to show you that our intellectual faith that we can have has a changing reality in the life of a believer. So I come to faith by trusting in what Jesus tells me is the truth, that what he achieved on the cross means that he is Lord over all and that through his sacrificial death and resurrection, I am able to obtain forgiveness of sins and come into the family of God. Now, all of that happens in my mind and in my will. But he says to prove that those things happen, there's going to be a change in me. Something's going to be different. Vast number of things are going to be different. What does that look like? And so James peels a whole lot of layers off here and shows us a whole lot of behaviors that he says, faith has an action. Faith does. And our topic this morning is from the first 12 verses of chapter 1. So if you're not already there, turn with me, please, because we're going to work a lot through this passage. And he shows us that faith rejoices in the background of trials, but overall it has this concept of I find joy. Now, a couple of little things to help you through the series as we go. Uh, we'll be in this book of James for about 14 weeks. And one of the things that you can have is each week we will put out, and we'll also have it up on our website, um, is a set of, uh, we'll have the passage that we're doing along with something called the Swedish Method, which is a way of helping to unpack the particular passage that uh, you're using, and then a whole lot of study questions that can go with it. So you can grab that, you can do it personally or in a group, maybe your home group if they haven't got something sorted, you could you could do that. So they'll be available and you can help yourself. Um, we will start off a group during the week. Stay tuned for that. Uh, we we're hoping to start it this week, but we may not be able to, but we'll let you know and that will just help us to tease out this book, this important letter, more and more with it. So James hooks straight in. In verse 3, isn't it interesting what his first action or outlet is in regards to? He said, a person of faith is a joyous person in the background of trials or suffering or troubles, however you want to word it. And he doesn't exactly say what they are. He just says there's many kinds. There's all sorts of various ways that you can have troubles or trials or stress in your life. You can stop and think about any of you in a moment in your life. Maybe you're going through difficulties right now. But you can all think of moments and times in your life where there's been significant trials and troubles. And he goes, these are uh, a test. They're like a mirror to see where you're at in your faith. You can either come out of trials with strengthened faith or a trial can um, take a feeble faith that is fragile and it fall away. 
Now, we want to be people of strong faith, so this is a really important thing that he raises. Culture. Many commentators have said that our culture, modern, western, secular culture, has the least tools to be able to cope with suffering and trials and troubles. We just seem to be lacking a resilience or lacking an ability to cope with things that are going on. The first one is in our modern secular culture, we've removed the concept of an afterlife. So cultures have always thought of suffering as a reality of this temporary life. And so I'm able to cope with something because there's a, a life to come and, and in the life to come, it's a better life. And so I will tolerate something that is going on. But in our secular culture, we've just said this life is all there is. You have to get on and make everything about your current life. And that sets you up for overemphasizing a happiness in this life at the point of going, I shouldn't have anything, any moment where I should have trouble or suffering that is going on. The second one, I think, shift that's happened is there's a move away from a, a group concept to uh, an idea of self-orientation and expressive individualism. Everybody today thinks they're special. Everybody is special. I remember talking to a teacher um, once who taught in, in both Decile 10 and Decile 1 schools. And he said in a Decile 10 school, it was interesting because every child in that classroom was gifted even when they weren't, which the majority of them weren't. He said, and so th they were precious and had to be treated in a particular way. He said it was quite different in the Decile 1 school. Um, nobody thought that particular way. And so it was interesting to see the resilience in the Decile 10 school was much less than what was in the Decile 1 school. And we can do this in a church situation. I was watching um, a video the other day of our kids growing up and, and there was a Sunday school end of year presentation thing and they were singing a song and they sung lots of good songs in their Sunday school. But this one was, um, from my head to my toes, I'm special. From my head to my toes, I'm really neat, right? Now, there's a certain level of truth to that. That's okay. But if I don't ground that in a wider concept that scripture actually talks about God being special and God being the unique one and I get my specialness from him, not from my own intrinsic thing. So we've seen this shift there into this specialness that everybody believes they kind of have, which moves to the third one, which I think was, was the belief in that it means that I am entitled to a good life. I'm entitled for things to go well for me and not to go wrong for me. So I see my life is now about personal happiness as a primary goal of life and existence. Does this resonate with anybody? Seem to be the messaging that we're often given. And then the fourth thing that I think, and there's a number of other factors involved in it, but a fourth one that I think is, is that we're very confused people these days. We, um, it's said that we, we receive in terms of level of information what we read or maybe what we visually see about a novel's worth of information every day. 
but rather than one single train of thought, we'll get all sorts of different ideas floating around, dotted through our, uh, our news outlet, our social media, and da da da. So we read something that might be vitally important, talking about deep things of my soul, next to something about cute fluffy kittens. And, and so we see all this information and we're just confused, right? Someone called it cognitive dizziness, this indistinguishable array of information. And what it does is it erodes our ability to distinguish between the trivial and the truly important. So all of these don't set me up well for coping with what happens when things go wrong in my life. How do I deal with them? So we come back to our text and he says it, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith, faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Let's look here at what he's saying and what James is not saying. The first thing he says is this, trials in this life are normal. Expect them. Where do we get this concept of specialness that we should be excluded from trials? It's not from scripture. <laughs> it's a modern concept that we've bought into. And so we see now things people talking about, even in Christian circles, about things being unfair and not right. And I get that on a certain level. Because of sin and rebellion, that's right, the things aren't. But the Bible doesn't talk about this as we are a set of victims in this space. The Bible just says that is the reality of living in this life and it repeatedly talks about it. Paul, Peter, James, Jesus himself all talked about the reality of trials and suffering in this life. So first of all, when a trial comes along, don't think somehow that, that God is somehow upset with you or you've done some disfavor to God, something around. The reality is trials are normal. The, the ability you have is your choice in how you respond to trials, and that is important. One other comment, though, is that not all trials are equal. Some of you will have trials in your life that just in reality are harder to bear than for others. That is, unfortunately, the nature of it. Not unfortunately, it's just the reality of it with it. But we're all in a place where we're able to see something greater than just the trial itself. And so the second point, when he talks about considerate joy, he's not saying that the trial itself is the joy. The trial itself is not the joy. I don't go, woohoo, trial time, stress, yes. The, the storm when it comes along is meant to just be born. You, you have to accept it and all the emotions and heartache and hurt that is part of that trial. What James is saying here is there's this, there's this hurt that will be born with it, but there's something wider and greater, and that is that God is doing something through that trial that God is doing something that will ultimately be joyous. And you have to trust in God and believe that God is doing something great there. That is where the faith is being shown. I can, I can bear this trial. I can, this, this trial will do something in me. And we realize if we stop and think about our lives, when is it that we, we grow the most in our character? When is it that we grow the most in our ability to develop perseverance? When trials come along, 
That's, we would like to think that they come along when life is comfortable and, and, and happy and joy. Right? We, we think, well, wouldn't that be good? But the reality is we know that our characters don't grow as rapidly in those spaces. They just don't. So when a trial comes along, we see, yes, I have to, I have to bear it. But I have to see it in a wider picture. So the third point is this, that trials are a, are a test. And we understand this in two ways. Think about the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7. Do you remember the last illustration that Jesus uses? He talks about two people, a wise man and a foolish man. We can, we can sing the song, right? Um, uh, a foolish man built his house upon the what? Right? And the rains came down and the floods came up. Rains came down, the floods came up. Rains came down, the floods came up. And the house on the sand went crash. The wise man, he said, built his house upon the rock. The same rains came, the same floods came, right? But the house on the rock stood firm. Jesus is saying that James is just picking up this idea. Jesus has done all this teaching about how we should live, how we should think, how we should be changed as somebody who lives as a person of faith. And he says this, what you build on is critical. Because on the surface, those houses could look pretty much the same. But when a storm comes along, we see what they are built on. When a storm comes in your life, you will realize what your faith is in. When it's in Jesus Christ, it will stand firm. It doesn't mean it is easy, but it does mean that once that trial and that storm, as, you, as it goes and blasts through, that the faith that you stand on will stay rock solid. And those who build their house on sand, who have their faith in other things, a double-minded person is what he's going to talk about in a moment. Then trials. So the first way of understanding it is this is a test to see whether my faith is just genuine in the first place. But there's another picture that is this idea of a test is, a, is something that refines. So when they are dealing with metal, say silver, for example, what they do is they heat it. And by heating it, what happens is um, impurities, uh, they slough off up the top and the dross is left kind of at the bottom, which they can, and then they can take this refined silver, which has had the impurities taken off it and becomes more and more pure as each time that they do it. You can become, he says, mature and complete. Trials refine you and grow you. And so that's when I find my place of joy. I go, because I see beyond what is happening in this moment, because God promises me something greater, I can withstand this because of what is happening in the large. And then the fourth one, which rolls into our fourth one. See down in verse 12, it says the ultimate goal is steadfastness. And that steadfastness, that perseverance, those people get the crown of life. 
Again, I say it, we're saved by faith, by putting our mind and will and saying, Jesus is Lord, and it's through him that I forget forgiveness. He is the only way. But it's actually in, in the behavior that flows out of it that proves the genuineness of the faith, and that is the ones who receive the crown of life. That is what is promised. Now let's come to verse 5, because these are verses here that are very interesting. They're often verses that are put up but become quite confusing for people unless we understand the context of them. Verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Now, the, the, the key question is, is James changing subject when he comes into verse 5? He's talked about trials, developing steadfastness. Does he change it when he comes into verse 5 and, and talks about wisdom? And I think this is really important. I don't think he is. So when we read this term wisdom, he's asking for a specific type of wisdom. He's saying we should be asking for wisdom that enables us to see the wider picture of what God is up to and doing. And when I see the wider picture of what God is up to and doing, that is called wisdom. And wisdom comes to bear when I go through a trial. I can set up wisdom and have, have wise thoughts and understanding, which helps me. And he's saying, this wisdom is available and God generously wants to give it to you. So here I see it. God is saying, I want to help you in your life. Will you be willing? There's a very helpful book which I would recommend anybody to read. It's a very accessible book. Uh, it's called The Wisdom Pyramid by Brett McCracken. And in that book, he just, he, he, this is how he de defines wisdom. As James puts it in the Bible, true wisdom is from above, not below. It is the God-created, God-given, God-fearing, God-oriented ability to synthesize, filter, evaluate, and apply information in ways that lead to right judgments and overall flourishing. We cannot be wise apart from God. God is the standard, the definition, the source, and the keeper of wisdom, but he's not greedy with it. He's happy to give it to us if only we ask. This, however, is the struggle. Asking requires humility, and we want to believe we can be wise without God. To bypass God in pursuit of wisdom, however, is a fast track to folly. So when James here is talking about believing and not doubting, what he's saying is, I must believe that the wisdom that I need is from God and not from other sources. Do you understand that? This is really important because if I, this is not some generalized sort of doubt. This is, this is doubting that God is the source of wisdom that I need for my life. And when I understand that as the specific thing that he's talking about, it, it opens up this passage and makes a lot more sense. So when he comes to this double-minded person, which is a very interesting phrase, it's, it's this idea of double soul. It's a, it's a person who's in two places. It's a split kind of mind. I, I, want, I want a bit of God, but I want to have a whole lot of other things that, are, that is going on at the same time. 
And, and that's us, right? This is this tendency. And, and so we're, we're blown apart. I, 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 yeah, I, I'm interested a little bit in the Bible over here, and I get a little bit of that at church and when I'm around some Christian kind of people. But then all the stuff that I'm reading over here and this other group of friends, some of the stuff they say seems quite interesting as well. And so I'm all over the place. He says it's like this boat tossed on the waves of the sea, right? Um, oh, sorry, a wave of the sea tossed all over the place by the wind, whatever's blowing at that particular moment. And so what happens is the, whatever the wind is blowing is where they kind of end up. And at some point that wind is going to blow and it's going to blow them away from faith. And we're seeing many examples of this in our world today. Kath just finished reading a book called Anatomy of Deconstruction, which looks at a number of people and the way that they deconstruct their faith. But as she read it, she realized that how fragile that faith was, that all it took was some other kind of worldly ideas or a particular trial to come along, and they abandoned a faith that had never really embedded in a way that came out in a steadfastness. We don't want this. And so this is why it's important to pursue wisdom. Now, one of the reasons why the, the, the main idea in Brett McCracken's book is he calls it the wisdom pyramid because he takes the concept of the food pyramid. And the food pyramid is this idea that at the bottom of the food pyramid, where it's at its widest, these are the foods that I should eat the most. And then as it comes up, there's a little bit up there that I should, foods that I should eat occasionally because they're not great foods for me, even though they might taste delicious, right? So if I do that, then I'll, I'll have a, I'll, I'll have, I'm more likely to have, have a healthy life. And so he takes it as a wisdom pyramid. There's places that I need to go to get my wisdom. And so he says the bottom layer is scripture, my Bible, my daily bread. This is where I understand what God thinks is primary for me to know. And it's where my wisdom should start from. Too many times what I hear is people bringing what they consider what is really worldly wisdom and then they try to marry it in with scripture rather than starting from scripture and assessing things from the world against that. And it's an increasing problem because our re reduction in biblical literacy. We need to get back to scripture more and more and start from that place. So he says the bottom layer is that. The second layer he says is church, local church, being around other Christians, being part of groups that study God's word, that have input into my life and mine into them. We look at it as church tradition as well. We, we've, we have chronological snobbery, C.S. Lewis says. We just think everything modern is right and everything historic is wrong and yet we come from this beautiful background of church tradition which has taught us and, and wrestled with a number of things things over many years. The third layer he goes is into nature and beauty and then he says books and then he starts going internet and particularly social media he says are up the top there. They're kind of more like the junk food where I go occasionally to get to, to, to look for wisdom and wisdom and you know very much in air quotes. I need to pursue it. I need to be asking God for it. I need to be asking God for it today. And then he comes into um, to, uh, an interesting example that he goes of, of double-minded people. He goes, um, believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position, but the rich should take pride in humiliation since they will pass away like a wild flower. 
For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant, its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. So there's two groups of people here and they both have a trial. For the, the people in humble circumstances who don't have much, their trial is this, that they've been judged by the world who says success is about what you own, the stuff that you have, and the world looks down on them and says that they are a failure. And so the trial for them is God actually wants to say, you know what, I don't measure things in the same way. So you still need to seek your wisdom from me and your understanding will come in that place rather than trying to seek it from the world in places where that you shouldn't go. Uh, somebody in humble circumstances doesn't have to worry about, in one sense, the, the measure of success that a wealthy person has. Because for a wealthy person, the world says you're successful. And you can use your wealth to live in comfort and luxury and probably mitigate a lot of the things that would be trials and stresses in this life. And he says that there's a very real temptation that sits in this, that you rely on those things rather than on God. And when you do that, you are a double-minded person. If these things over here were taken away, you could, you, it would destroy you because you've built on sand. Now, that doesn't mean you have to get rid of all those things. You just have to realize that that is the temptation that sits there in material wealth and comfort. And you need to think very seriously about how you're building on rock and not on sand. You need wisdom. Ha ah, ha, we all need wisdom, don't we? Whatever circumstances we are in, that we are single-minded people getting our reality from God. And then verse 12 gives us the outcome of this. This is great. Blessed is the one who perseveres under the trial, under the testing, under the things that come along and the refining, because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. Now, this concept of enduring with uh, looking out for um, joy down the track can be found in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Come with me to Hebrews chapter 12. It says, therefore, verse 1, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that's so easily entangled, and let us run with what? Perseverance or steadfastness. This is what James's goal was. Let us run with perseverance, the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on who? Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. Here we go. Here's the key one we're talking about. For the joy set before him, he what? Endured. Do you see that? Jesus himself endures the cross. He's there the night before his crucifixion and he's in the garden and he's pleading with God if there's another way. He did not 
on one level want to go to the cross because he knew what he was in for. He would have to go through the greatest trial, the greatest test that any human being has ever gone through. And he did it. And he did it for you and for me so that we could have the joy that he was going to experience. Endurance, perseverance with ultimate delayed gratification, joyousness. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Faith rejoices in trials. Faith perseveres. Faith longs for wisdom that sees all of things, things going on. But faith ultimately gets its model from Jesus Christ. We're going to take the communion now. And when we take the bread and the juice, one of the things I want you to remember today is thank you, Jesus, because you endured the cross. Can you show me how your ability to not grow weary and lose heart in that moment enables me to not grow weary and lose heart in any trial that I go through so that one day I may know the joy of receiving the crown of life because you have produced a steadfastness in me that comes from my faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know that the reality of our faith came at a cost, that you had to endure, that you had to choose to not grow weary and lose heart, that when you're on the cross, you, you set joy before you because there was a greater good of what was happening with what you were doing. Father, would you help us in our lives to see that model? Would you help us to pursue wisdom in the right place amongst the distraction of our world that splits our mind, that, that causes us cognitive dissonance, where we, dizziness where we just don't know where we sort of sit? Would you help us to become single-minded in pursuing wisdom from you in a place where we believe it without doubt? so that we may understand that trials in our life are places that you are refining us and showing us that our faith is built on solid ground, on rock, that will be a steadfast perseverance that results in that crown of life. Thank you once again for your sacrifice for us and your great love. In Jesus' name, amen.